called him that was because he had a signature skill, a move that he would use. And we know it as, as a, a rear neck choke today, but what he would essentially do is he would finally position himself behind his opponents and he would put them in a kind of a triangle hold around the neck and squeeze that bicep and you'd lose the blood flow and the oxygen to your brain. They're out in just a few seconds, but if you held it too long, you could kill him. Nice guy. Anyway, so you had him, and he was the American champion. He was undefeated. He just dominated the circle there. But there was also a European champion, and he was born uh, near the border of the Bulgarian-Turkey border, and his name was Yusef Ismail, but he went by Yusef the Terrible Turk. Okay, so they started really early with very creative names. And so here was this guy, and how he really won was just being meaner than the other guy. Okay, and, and what I mean by this, he was six foot two, two hundred fifty pounds, and they brought him from Turkey to France, where he just dominated the the French champion and then the rest of the European champions. Well, how did he win? Well, he actually was the inventor of the choke slam. Literally, he did it. He started it, and there's a reason why. You see, the, one of the only rules they had was if you threw your opponent out of the ring, then the fight was over. But you see, Yusef considered that boring, and his pleasure would stop. So he developed it where he would grab them by the throat, slam to them to the ground, just to keep them in the ring with him a little bit longer. Pleasant. So, of course, these two guys, they decided that there had to be a match between these two titans, if you were, of the wrestling world. So Yusef, he boarded a, a ship, he, he sailed across to America, and he went on a tour just dismantling opponent after opponent after opponent until finally the day came that Yusef and the Strangler would wrestle. It was an amazing fight. They said it lasted for 17 minutes, and there weren't rounds back then. It was 17 straight minutes nonstop of hand-to-hand combat. Ribs were broken. Blood was everywhere. It, both people would say they would they'd be hard to fight ever again after this match. So finally, Lewis had his advantage. He, he got swiveled around, and there was the neck of Yusef. Immediately, he popped in the hole. He squeezed as tight as he could, and everyone knew the fight was over, except one problem. You see, Yusef was like a giant muscle, and essentially he had no neck. Okay? Maybe you've met somebody like that, right? So when he squeezed, they said that Yusef just looked up and smiled (laughs) that day, grabbed the strangler, slammed to the mat, and then for the next two to three minutes, tore into Lewis until they literally had to have a team of police tear him off of him. So he won. Great. So he wanted his prize money. Now Yusef was a little bit flamboyant. He had a specialty belt. And he asked that he he didn't like paper money. He wanted it in gold, gold coins. Well, the prize money in 1898 was $10,000. You say, that's a lot of money. Well, for me it is, even right now. But back then, it's like becoming a millionaire overnight. He wanted it only in gold coins, and he put it in his belt where he would keep it close, and he boarded the ship, the La Bournier, back to France with his winnings as the world champion. Great story. Except... Of course, there's always a terrible ending, right? So while he was on the La Bournier, they actually collided with a French, or rather an English vessel in the North Atlantic, where the icy waters are so cold that most people will tell you that once you hit it, you have about three minutes before hypothermia sets in, and after that, you're gone. So people were panicking. There were 700 people on this vessel. Only 100 would survive. One of the people was Yusef. Yusef was panicked, and he saw a lifeboat being lowered into the waters, and he jumped. 
And unfortunately, he toppled it over, and not just him, but everyone in it fell through the water. Now, luckily, luckily, there was a lifeboat near Yusef. And he began to swim, but they saw that he was struggling. And the reason was, is he had his belt of gold still wrapped on him. They said, you have to cut that off. You have to get that off. You're not going to make it with it off. Come on, cut the belt off and get over here. And Yusef, it says, at least according to the reports, turned back. He said, I can make it, but I won't let go of my gold. You see, he was born poor. He wasn't going back to a life without money. They watched him bob for a little bit, and they saw him go up and then down, and up and down, and then gone. Somewhere currently in the North Atlantic is a pile of gold. The body's long gone. To remind us that even the strongest among us can be bested by our own greed. Such was Yusuf. Proverbs chapter 30. We have an interesting warning. And it's one written by a man named Agur. Now it's interesting here that Solomon actually did not write this. Um, there's, there's some debate amongst commentary uh, about the last two chapters of Proverbs. And, and some people say that they, they say, well, it could have been Solomon just under different names. But most commentaries and scholars that I've been able to read over the last couple of weeks will actually tell you that no, this was an actual separate person, Agur. Uh, and he was most likely in the court of Solomon, but he was not Solomon himself. So that means he was exposed to the wealth of Solomon. He saw uh, all that Solomon had, but he, it wasn't his ownership. And we read, and, we, and there's a lot of incredible things that he has to say, but there's one in particular that took me by surprise. It's one that kind of goes against every fiber of my being, right? Because I'm greedy. And this is what he says, uh, verse number 7, hear the word of the Lord. It says, two things I ask of you. Now this is... Agur talking to God. It's a prayer. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Okay, so keep falsehood and deceitful words from me. That's an easy prayer, right? Don't let me be around liars. Great. No one likes a liar. I mean, we're all liars. But hey, actually, my wife would say only all men are liars. She's a woman, so she's not. Anyway, but no. So then he says this. He says, give me neither poverty. Wonderful. No one wants to be poor. But this next one strikes it odd. He says, give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. Hmm. I have a question. Has anyone ever, and this is rhetorical, you don't have to raise your hand. When was the last time you prayed? Hey God, I have so much stuff. I need less. I don't think I can handle all of the stuff and money that you've provided. I'm just a little worried here. Could you just make sure that I don't get rich? You're like, no, because God might answer that. Why would I ever pray that? (laughs) Why would he pray this? Verse 9. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, who's the Lord? Wow. Wow. You know what Agur said? Prosperity is not a bad thing. But there's a danger there. That sometimes in our prosperity we can be tempted to completely remove God from the equation. 
Sometimes in our own greed, in our own rush for more things, we've forgotten where the source was anyway. There's a danger in prosperity. Charles Spurgeon, who died penniless on purpose, he wrote this, he said, I believe that he, speaking of God, frequently tries us by the blessings which he sends. This is an overlooked temptation. When a man is permitted to grow rich, what a trial of faith is hidden away in that condition. It is one of the severest and providential tests where I have known one man to fall through poverty. I have known 50 to fail through prosperity. He later writes and says, A child of God is never in more danger than when he lacks nothing. Wow. This morning, I'm going to try to be brief. But I want to take us through a little bit of understanding about the dangers that lie in our prosperity. And by God's grace, hopefully we can avoid them. Let's pray. We'll begin. Father, I need you this morning. I'm tired. I'm weak. And I'm totally unable to present your word clearly or the way that you would desire absent of your spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and use me in spite of myself. And help me now today to say only that which would glorify you. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with our church family and help none of us to leave this room the same way that we walked in. We ask this in the name of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. So a couple things. Number one, if you want to write something down, we have to do something, especially as Americans. This is not really textual, but it is practical. Number one, you have to acknowledge your prosperity. See, when I read this, my immediate reaction was, no, 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 I'm not rich, right? So this doesn't apply to me because I don't have a whole bunch of things. I don't have the nicest car. I don't have the nicest home. This is obviously for someone else like Bill Gates. Bill Gates really needs this chapter, right? Like that's not me. But the reality is, I'm going to give us a little wake-up call. Everyone in this room is fabulously wealthy. So what I mean? Well, here's a couple wake-up calls. This is by the ILO. Now, the ILO is the branch of the United Nations that studies the global economy throughout planet Earth. They do this over several years, and they give an updated report. This is the report based on the 2018 report. They'll finish the 2019. It'll be released sometimes early next year. Now, according to the ILO, still today, the average human, about two-thirds to be exact, two-thirds of humanity lives on a daily wage of $2. So, essentially, they make $730 or so a a year. So, if you make $1,000 a year, you're officially in the top 33% of all income earners on planet Earth. Congrats. Now, a guy at McDonald's will make that much in a few months, right? But that's the reality. Then they went further. They actually studied and they said of all global economies, both within starvation and those that are prospering, whether it be Western, Western civilizations, Asian civilizations, uh, whether it be uh, South America, Africa, all over, if we average the, uh, the economy, we average all of their benefits, so health insurance, education, all their hands out, the average economy by 99% is $18,024. 
So essentially what that means is if you make $20,000 or more a year, you are far more wealthy than 99% of planet Earth. Period. Oh, this passage applies to us. We're all very wealthy. But you see, we don't realize it because our culture inoculates us to it. But if we got outside of our little bubble, we would find that we are very, very blessed. I had a friend, he took a missions trip to a country in South America. I'll be honest with you, I can't remember which country it was. But it was one of the more poorer ones that had been ravaged by uh, cartels and corruption and everything else. Now, when he got there, he said, I noticed a couple things that were different. It was kind of weird. Okay, Number one, he said, I noticed uh, that all of the banks, all of them, were incredibly armed with security. But they weren't police. He said, I'm talking, they were uh, grenades, fully automatic weaponry, everything. And so I asked our guide, I said, what is, what is that about? He said, well, first off, the police aren't, uh, they don't have enough money to actually buy the weapons that the cartel does. And so they can't keep the cartel out of the banks. So the, in our country, it really is a third world country. So there are a few that are very, very, very rich. And so they, they arm and buy their own private security to protect their money in the banks. Or else the banks will be emptied in just a couple hours of all their money. Okay. So as he was driving, he noticed and he said, I, I saw them. the average house was just pieces of, you've seen them probably on, on uh, whether documentaries or whatever, pieces of aluminum just kind of strapped together to make a little hobble. He said, but thirdly, the craziest thing was everyone in there was so happy. <laughs> like, they're just incredibly happy. I went to church. It was the most amazing worship service I'd ever been in. They spent hours just thanking the Lord for what they had. He said, I didn't really know what to do with it. He said, I took my guide, and, I, and, I, and he said, the crazy thing is they still actually have like some like American fast food chains. He said, I took him to Wendy's. Pray for my friend. He doesn't have good taste. All right, so he said, I took him to Wendy's, and, uh, and, he, and he said, I want to buy you something. And his guide was very weird about it. He said, no, you really, you really don't have to. In fact, just don't. He said, no, 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 I want to buy you something. I'm here. I'm going to get lunch. I'm going to eat in front of you. That's rude, right? So he bought him a double cheeseburger with bacon because bacon makes everything better. And then he gave it to him, and he said, well, let's pray over our meal. And they said, okay. He said, and he said, um, you go ahead and pray. He said, I've never experienced a five-minute prayer over a cheeseburger. But I did then. He said, the guy started to cry. He said, God, I've never had one of these. I don't know what I'm about to taste. I'm so humbled. That you'd give this to me. I'm unworthy. The preacher said that once he was done hearing that prayer, he said, I couldn't eat. I just said, so let's go back to the hotel. They got together later on. They were going to go to a village in the mountains. And they, they had packed their lunch this time. And they stopped. And, and they got out and they were all eating. He could tell that his guide, his friend, had, had gone off kind of the corner. He was hiding something. And he's like, I don't know what this guy's doing. So he, he went over to him. And he found him with that burger wrapped in the Wendy's wrapper still. So what are you doing? He said, I'm eating. <laughs> when he unwrapped it, he saw that he had cut the burger in seven ways. 
a bite for each day. He said, you understand. He said, I will never again be able to buy this. He said, I make less than $2 a day. This is $2.50. This is more than I make in a whole day. He says, after I buy what my family needs for the week, I can, I can never afford this. The man was in his 40s. He said, I, 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 this is a gift. I'm going to make it last. Me and my wife fought over last week where we're going to eat, <laughs> right? How much do we need? Oh, we're all wealthy. So number one, we have to acknowledge our wealth. And you say, now, there's nothing wrong with having money. And you're right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having money. I'm not saying that if you have money in your bank account, you're a sinner. Okay, that's not the case. I mean, we're all sinners, but that's not the reason why. Okay. There's nothing wrong with having physical prosperity, but there is definitely something wrong when the gift becomes the goal, when the extra stuff becomes our focus rather than something that we're just grateful for. You see, wealth has a tendency to take control of our minds and our hearts. Charles Spurgeon spoke a lot on this, so I'm going to keep quoting him. He actually said, money is a sticky thing. And he said, once it gets in your hand, if you don't let it go really quick, he said, it just kind of stays there and then it becomes a fist and you don't want to let go. That's the danger that lies in it. It's interesting that Solomon wasn't the one that wrote this chapter. Because Solomon did write a chapter on wealth in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Go there real quick. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Probably one of the more depressing books in your life, Ecclesiastes. Okay? Like if you truly want to just feel terrible about everything, read this book. So, understand now, once again, this is a little bit of speculation based on commentaries, but most people will tell you that this was written in the later part of Solomon's life. This was when him looking back almost in regret. You see, Solomon, and we, we've read about him, we've studied him. He started out great, asked God for wisdom. Israel went through, through an incredible rise in power and prosperity. And then he just went off the map. Right? He started worshiping false idols. He had a thousand wives and girlfriends, which is... Look, I got three girls in my house. I don't even know how he survived that. But anyway, so nonetheless... No offense, ladies. Please don't stab me later. So, um... You had him, and he kind of fell off the map there. And then he gets to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and he's just kind of putting things and making it real. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to notice. Number one, you have to acknowledge your wealth. And number two, you have to acknowledge what wealth can do for you or to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse uh, number 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. So what's the first thing your prosperity can do for you? Well, here's what it can't do. You'll never be satisfied with it. It's never enough. Never. There will never be a point in your life that you'll have enough money that truly you'll be happy. 
I heard a comedian once who said, well, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy jet skis, basically the same thing, right? Okay, no, that's not how it works. That's, that's an amusement, that's an entertainment, but at the end of the day, you're just as lonely, you're just as empty, you're just as unfulfilled as you were when you started. Money can't buy you that. That's only through Christ. But we're guilty of it ourselves, right? Well, if I just had this much in the bank, I'd be good. Well, if I just had a nicer car, or a nicer house, or, or, or whatever it is, I, I'll be good. I remember when I first got married to Val, we had nothing. All right, so like we were like, when I say we were broke, we were broke. You're like, you said you were just prosperous, fine. I was prosperous and broke. Anyway, so... I remember it was early, we were in ministry, and there were weeks that we, she would look at me, she, she does our budget, right, and she would say, we have 20 bucks, it's going to last us two weeks, that's it. Getting me some Dunkin'. Alright, so, like, that, I mean, that, we just didn't have much. And I remember specifically, and I'm not going to go over specific numbers because Val hates when I do that, but I remember specifically I said, if we just had this much in the bank, okay, if I just had X in the bank, are we good? Like, life would be good, right? I'll be honest with you, just the other week, I was stressed. I was talking about it, and I was like, man, we just don't have this much in the bank, and I need to buy this, and I need to buy this, and, and I just don't understand. It's just, I, don't, I don't know what you know what's going on with my finances. And then she looked at me, and she said, Patrick, do you remember that amount that you said you had to have in the bank? I said, yeah. She said, we have three times that right now. You're still not happy. Oh, <laughs> you see, because money can't satisfy because we're always looking for more. Keep reading, it says, and now when good things increase, I love this, the ones who consume them multiply. So what does that mean? When you get stuff, more people want to take it. That's what that means, right? And when you get money, you have friends come out the woodwork, okay? Like, Everybody needs a dollar. No, they don't. Go away. It's mine. They had a panel on CNN of lottery winners, right? So people way luckier than me, and they get lined up there. Now, here's the thing. The minimum. They each won a minimum of $100 million. Good. I could live that life, right? And the, the, the interviewer the, is sitting there, the reporter, and he says, Okay, the first question. Tell me really quick, in your life, what has been the number one change since winning $100 million or more? And it's really, it's really weird just to watch it. It's almost in unison. Not quite, but almost. They all just say, we just keep getting sued. <laughs> One guy raised his hand and said, my mom sued me. Look, if I won $100 million, Tammy Harris, she'd be like, pain and suffering, pay up. All right, look. I mean, <laughs> like, that's the reality, right? The more you have, the more people try to take it. <sighs> because they think it's going to make them happy, too. And so then, now you have something, now you have to keep it from other people, and you're stressed out all the time. Then, then follow the next verse. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Hey, does your money keep you awake at night? That's because you're focused on the wrong thing. Well, I just... How am I going to pay this? And how am I going to pay that? And I just, I just need to make more money. I need to figure out, I need to get my, anyway, my numbers, if they're not right, but they could be better. I, I just, I need to make more. Whew. Keeping yourself up a long time for something that you can't even control. 
You see, money has a way of bringing stress, but it never has a way of bringing peace. Isn't that crazy? We just think it does. There's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by the owner to, its own, to his own harm. What does that mean? Money has a tendency to make you greedy. Make you selfish. It's mine. I'm not giving it to anybody. Be careful. You see, I have a two-year-old. You all know Addie, right? Love her. Oh my goodness. She will like she'll hug you one minute and then she will hit you upside the head the other. It is awesome. That is her mama's child. Anyway, so we have a friend in um, the Chattanooga, Cleveland, Chattanooga area. His name's Daniel and his wife, Rebecca. Uh, we we kind of like when we, we joined ministry, they were new. We were like they they got there a few months, and then we were there for like just a couple months after them. And we just kind of did life together, right? Like I, I remember um, we announced that we were you know that well not we she was pregnant with Addie. She has reminded me that I did nothing. But anyway, so Valerie uh, was pregnant with Addie, and then next thing you know, Rebecca was pregnant with their first child. Her name is Tegan, uh, and literally I, uh, we we had Addie. Well, once again, she had Addie, and I was there to be there and witness it. And so then uh, we had Addie, and then the next thing is, three weeks later, I was in the hospital, and I was bringing them Dunkin' Donuts co- coffee because I called them. I said, what do you want? And they said, that's all I want because we're saved, and we love the Lord. We need Dunkin'. Okay, so if you, if you haven't caught in the fact, what, what should you give you know, me for Christmas? Dunkin'. Okay, now... <laughs> I remember we we uh, we just did that together. They actually um, when we had uh, Carlin a couple weeks later, they had Theo, their son. And we we missed them dearly, and we not, and we've been up, and they actually came up. Um, I was at work, but Rebecca said, "I'm going to stop by. I'm going to bring you some Duncan, and I'm going to just spend some time with you." And it was great, right? Now the thing about two year old girls, okay. First off, there's a lot of emotion right there. Then two, okay, they, um, they're really great with one another, like they're besties, as long as you don't introduce, like, toys of any kind, ever, right? She said, I remember, I, she said, uh, it was really great, Tegan and, and Addie, they just loved each other, and they were getting along, and everything was great, and then all of a sudden, Tegan would pick up, you know, Addie's, like, etch-a-sketch thing that she draws on, and Addie would look at her like she was going to knock her out, <laughs> like, like, that was not okay, all right? It was mine, 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 I was like, okay, no, we don't know, this is not how we should behave, and it's like, I don't care how we should behave, that's mine, all right, so we just put them outside, gave them something they could do together as a team, they could color and paint and not kill each other, so that's what we decided to do with our two-year-olds who are just so selfish. Man, we act like two-year-olds sometimes, don't we? So what do you mean? Oh, well, I mean, I would, I would, I would help them out. You know, I know they're on the, on the side of the street or whatever, but this is mine. And I earned it, and they didn't, and they don't deserve it. Okay. You see, because we, we've slipped it in our head, we thought we actually earned it and it's ours. We have ownership, but actually we just have stewardship. And that doesn't belong to us anyway. Money can make us greedy. Like children. I love this next part. That wealth, verse 14, that wealth was lost in a bad venture. Oh my goodness. So, so here's what that means. He kept it, and then it was gone. Hey, do you know money talks? And most of the time it says bye-bye. Like, that's, that's exactly it. It doesn't last. You have no idea if it's going to be there for you tomorrow. So you fight, and you scramble for what? 
Something that could leave you in a heartbeat. And you want to know why that terrifies us? Because we put all our trust and our faith in that. And when it's gone, we don't know what to trust. Oh, maybe that's because we've been exactly where Agur said, and we said, oh yeah, God, I forgot all about him. (laughs) That's what prosperity does. And I like this last point. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. He will uh, take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. Tolstoy tells a story of a man in Russia on the steps of Russia. And uh, he says that a man appeared to him and said, okay, I'm going to make you a deal. I have the power, I have the ability that... Tomorrow morning when the sun comes up, all the land that you walk in between the sun coming up and the sun going down, I'm going to give that to you. It'll be yours. So the guy's like, sweet, right? So he gets up early in the morning and he starts to walk. And he walks and he walks miles upon miles upon miles. And then he sees in the corner of his eye the sun has started to come down. He realizes how far he was, right? So he begins to walk a little quicker, a little faster. Then it goes to a jog. Then it goes to a full-out run. Then a sprint as fast as he possibly can because he knows if he doesn't make it by sundown, he doesn't get to keep any of it. Sure enough, he makes it. Right at the the brink, right before the sun. And as soon as he hits his starting point, he collapses from sheer exhaustion. Everything starts to shut down and he dies right there. Tolstoy said they took him and they put him in a little three foot by six foot hole in the ground. And then he writes this. He says, because when you leave, that's all you get to keep anyway. You see, we struggle and we fight so we can have as much stuff as we possibly can. Only so someone else can spend it when we're gone. That's what prosperity can do for you and what it can do to you. So the question then, as we look at the words of Agur, as we see what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, is what should the response of the Christian be? How do we properly respond to the overwhelming wealth that's in our hands? I'll be brief. Go to 1 Timothy. We're almost done. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Timothy's writing, actually Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, he's going to the church of Ephesus. Now, a lot of people will tell you, well, John was the pastor of Ephesus. At this particular point, uh, John was actually exiled to Patmos, which is why Timothy is there. And so he's there to pastor them. Now, Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, Next only to Rome and possibly Alexandria, it was most likely either the second or the third most wealthy city in the entire place. I would love to have that issue, uh, all the love offerings, just nothing but millionaires. Wonderful. All right, so they walk into this church, and they sit down, and they go through all these different things that Timothy needs to do, false doctrines and uh, the qualifications, everything. It finally gets to chapter 6 to the end, and he said, now instruct those who are rich in this present age. Okay, so that's us. Remember, you're wealthier than 99% of planet Earth. That's you. That's me. So here's our instruction. He says, number one, don't be arrogant. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, I'm going to make a quick note here. Don't think that because of your wealth, that that now means... You've arrived. 
there's a, there's a big lie going on in the American church, and I hate it. It's this prosperity gospel garbage. Okay, let me, let me go ahead and tell you why that's a lie. Because it equates your relationship, God, with the amount of money you have in the bank. That's arrogant. God says, no, 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 no. Just because you have money does not mean you are now at the place you need to be. And just because you don't have money doesn't mean that God hates you. Like, that's not how that works. Your wealth is not a, a reflection of your relationship with God. It's what you do with your wealth that is a reflection of your heart toward God. So don't be arrogant in how we approach our finances. Number one. Number two, he says this. He says, not to be arrogant. Then he says, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. We just talked about this. You see, the problem is, is that we often put our faith in things and we treat God like how uh, one preacher I heard him say, it, we treat God uh, like the extra tire in the back of the trunk. We'll get it if we really, really, really need it, but we try everything else prior to it, right? Like if something goes wrong, I'll, I'll, I'll call on him, but otherwise, I've got this. Don't trust in that. But I want to spend time, a little bit of time on three and four. Number three, he says this. He said, instruct them, verse number 18, to do what is good and to be rich in good works. God wants you to be rich. In fact, God wants you to be magnanimously wealthy in good works. God is not concerned with your greeds. He is concerned with your needs, but not your greeds. But he's very concerned with what you do with what you have for others. Are you investing in eternity? That's what God cares about. You see, let me ask you this, church. Well, I mean, let's just put it this way instead of asking. If we've gone a whole week and we've been so busy accruing wealth and trying to manage our wealth and we have failed to do something for someone else, we've sinned. We've done wrong. And I know it's easy. I'm there with you. I've got two kids. I'm busy. I'm running. I'm working. Technically, I've got two jobs. I'm trying to do everything I can to get as much stuff and then make my family as happy as I can be with all this other stuff. But then I forget I've got a whole week and I have done nothing for anybody of any real importance. Who did you impact this week? Whose life did you change? Because you could. Don't invest here. This won't last. Invest there. I remember my sister and I were little. We, we didn't have a lot. My mom will tell you that. We didn't, weren't rich. Even on American standards, we, we didn't have much. It was going to be probably a small Christmas, right? We went to a family's house, the Olsons. Some of you will know them, some of you won't. We went to the Olsons' house. I was little. Mr. Jim Olson walked in, and he had a, first a laundry basket. Who wraps a gift in a laundry basket? But whatever, there's a laundry basket full of 
candies and popcorns and, and uh, old movies. I remember I watched Popeye like a thousand times. It was great, right? I'm 27. And I remember what someone did for me when I was three. Not because they gave me a ton of money. Not because... You know, they, they, they changed where I lived or gave us nice cars. It was because they took time out of their busy schedule to make an impact on a three-year-old boy. Church, we can come here and we can fellowship. We can have great theology, which I think we do. We can have great philosophy. I love it. I, look, I'm a philosophy and theology nerd. Let's talk. Let's debate everything. It's awesome. But if we're not impacting our community, we're failing. We failed. What did you do to change someone's life this week? Invest in good works. Lastly, this is where the rubber meets the road. Don't just invest your time. Let's talk about your actual money. To be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share. That word willing to share, I mean the, the King James and the, King, and the New King James and the ESV, they all actually translate it as anxious. My, my sister, uh, we were, she, she printed these notes off for me. She texted back, she said, no, it's not anxious, it's eager. I said, no, the Greek is anxious. What does that mean? That means... I am so ready to give that I'm literally scared about the chance that I'll miss my opportunity. When's the last time we came in church and said, I can't wait for that offering plate? Oh my goodness, I hope they don't pass me up. I'm just so ready to give it. Hmm. Well, how much should I give? 10%? <laughs> if you're struggling with 10%, you're way off. Like, the New Testament understanding is everything. <laughs> like, that, that's it. Just, just keep giving. That, see, I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, there's really no way in the New Testament to understand how much we should give. He said, the best I can understand it is that we are to give until we find ourselves in need. You have a dollar, you have a dollar, you have a dollar. Oh, I'm out. Okay, God, now I have to rely on you. You want to know how the easiest way not to trust in your riches? Get rid of them. Don't have too much. Make it to where you have to trust God. Well, I don't know about that. I got my 401k. I got my, I, I know. I'm not asking you to go sell your house, okay? Don't do that because I am not letting you stay on my couch. <laughs> but we should give. And it shouldn't be hard. God loves a cheerful giver. Loves it. Your heart's where your treasure is. How much of your heart did you put in the plate this week? How much of your heart did you give out to somebody who needed it more than you? You don't have to bring it to church. Give it to the homeless man. I don't care. How much? If we could take how much you're willing to give to the Lord... And invest that for eternity. And that's what we're going to build your mansion with. How big a house are you going to get? We're commanded to give. And if you don't, remember, money's a sticky thing. If you leave it in your hand too long, you'll be tempted to keep it forever.
I'm going to invite the instrumentalists up. We're going to pray. I want to encourage you this week. Having money is not a bad thing, but don't let it have your heart. Let's pray this week on how we can give, on how we can invest, how we can be rich in good works so as to avoid the dangers and the pitfalls in our prosperity.